Hello, and welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. I'm your host for today, Ariel Angel, the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. Today, we're going to be talking about Jewish matchmaking, the Netflix show. I guess you can call it a spinoff of Indian matchmaking, which has gone on to multiple seasons. Many of you have requested this episode, and we were happy to oblige because this is our jobs, (laughs) fortunately or unfortunately. My name is Aliza Ben Shalom and I am a matchmaker and dating coach. Welcome. You're gonna save me, right? (laughs) Finding your person is the hardest thing to do in the entire world. And that's where I come in. The matchmaking I strictly do with the Jewish community where I have helped over 200 couples to get to the chuppah. I want them to be obsessed with me. I need passion. Animal lover. Blonde or blue eyes or, you know, bigger mm-hmm, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do feel immense amount of pressure. You're supposed to be married and have children. I'm like the only one in Kansas that is a Jew of my color. As an Orthodox Jewish woman, if you're 28, people make comments. You're such a great girl. How are you still single? Um, all like amazing questions. <laughs> Well, cheers. The rule of thumb is date them until you hate them. Red flags, boy energy. There were two big red flags. One was that she was a vegan, and one was that she had two cats. Wow. Yeah. I definitely was into him. There was chemistry. How big is his mezuzah? (laughs) I have the hardest job in the world. And if you don't believe me, just try doing it. I should say I'm joined by managing editor Nathan Goldman, associate editor Mari Cohen, and fellow turned news editor Aparna Gopalan making her debut on the podcast, if I'm not mistaken. How did you guys feel watching Jewish matchmaking? This is Mari. Hi, everybody. Glad to be here fulfilling this important function of my job. Um, you know, I felt complicated. On the one hand, I had a good time watching Jewish matchmaking. As regular listeners of this podcast might know, I do unfortunately watch a lot of dating reality TV. Specifically, I watch The Bachelor. And that's actually not really watching dating because none of it really has very much to do with real dating at all. And instead, it's just like kind of an elaborate theater performance. Jewish matchmaking, on the contrary, actually did feel like watching real dating that real people were doing in which they actually were trying to, you know, meet each other and get a sense of each other's compatibility. And I thought that that was kind of fascinating to watch. On the other hand, it made me feel a little bit sad because I just felt like the description and representation of Jewish life on offer was not necessarily the most exciting, vibrant version of Jewish life today. You know, a lot of Jewish identity really completely conflated with Israel. You know, a lot of people who seemed maybe a little bit sort of stuck up. or You could say dumb, Mari. <laughs> you're allowed to say dumb. I don't know if it's dumb. I mean, being dumb is not a moral failing. I know, but like they could have had smarter people. Right. They brought on one smart guy, this architect, to date Harmony, and they like portray him as totally unfuckable. Like they're like, here's 
a representative from the world of thinking people. And then they kind of just shit all over him for being like boring and smart and not handsome. I think Faye seems kind of smart. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, the Orthodox people are kind of occupying a different space in this show entirely. Yeah, I think in general, the the characters are mostly not appealing, which like sometimes does some of its own interesting work, you know, like in some ways, like the Israeli men on here come off looking really bad, which is kind of interesting in its own way in terms of like what that actually does for their representation. But I think in general, it's just, it kind of reminds me of, I wrote an article about a Jewish dating app two years ago now in 2021 called The Locks Club and just about the ways in which like Jewish identity in America has kind of become this not very appealing, just very bland identity markers in a lot of these dating conversations. And I feel like Jewish matchmaking doesn't do a ton to change that representation. Totally. Yeah. I think it was trying very self-consciously to show a spectrum and diversity of Jewish experience. And I think in some ways does a pretty okay job for the kind of thing it is in terms of like introducing different terms and like, oh, it can mean the most orthodox and observant people and it can mean the like most secular people and then this like whole range in between. And so there is something nice in the way it was trying to do that. That also seems like the way in which it becomes like totally incoherent. The whole way in which it's trying to take a framework that comes from a more traditional community, the like whole idea of the matchmaker who is herself orthodox, and then trying to like apply it in this broader context. There's just all these ways in which that becomes really like weird. It begins from this premise that, you know, we've talked about it at the magazine in different ways, especially a few years ago in this roundtable we did on the concept of quote unquote intermarriage. It sort of begins from the premise that all of these Jewish people want to find a Jewish partner. And I mean, that's true in the sense that they are like working with a matchmaker who will only partner them with a Jewish partner, but they also all like affirm that in different ways. They give reasons for that, but ones that like, I really wanted someone to like press them on or like just ask more about. So I saw Jewish matchmaking like a few weeks after a friend made me kind of sit down and watch like a couple of episodes of Married at First Sight and that and like Love is Blind. And I feel like there's like this whole like genre of the revenge of the like monogamous marriage TV shows. All these shows where people are just desperate to just get married and like start having children tomorrow or something. And this seemed like very much in the same genre, like Indian matchmaking, which I also was forced to watch. That felt like much more of like an ethnography of like this weird tribe of people who are doing this extremely strange like business merger of their families. Whereas like Jewish matchmaking didn't feel like that at all. It really felt like a continuation of like all of these other reassertions of people wanting to get married types of reality shows. But like Jewishness was just kind of another variable. So like in Love is Blind, they might be asking all the contestants, you know, what are you looking for in your partner? And then that person kind of list off like a bunch of attributes, like physical appearance or like what kind of person they want or what kind of like sense of humor, blah, 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 like how many kids. And I feel like in Jewish matchmaking, they just added on like, what kind of Jew do you want? And they just kind of say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of, in a way, why it works is that it just really does basic dating show pretty well. Aparna, we've talked a little bit about the comparison to Indian matchmaking. I found Indian matchmaking successful on a different level. Like, I almost feel like For me, watching Indian matchmaking is like watching Fiddler on the Roof. It's like, for those who have not seen it, in Fiddler on the Roof, he has five daughters. And through the course of the 
film, three of them get married, but like arrange their own matches. So like they're supposed to be matched through a matchmaker, but they decide one by one in different ways that they are not going to be matched through a matchmaker, that they're going to pursue basically love marriages. And I feel like we're watching on a certain level in that show, the way that this process is hitting modernity in a certain kind of way and like sort of failing. You know, you're watching these people kind of like chafe against that process. And so it's sort of fascinating because they're still struggling with their family's expectation that this is something that they're actually going to have to do. Whereas for most of the Jewish people, that is just totally not the case. I mean, there's literally no reason why any of these people would be set up by a matchmaker. I mean, as Ari said to us earlier about one of the characters, Nikisha, who is from Kansas City, like she doesn't need a matchmaker. She just needs to move or like join a reform synagogue and meet other people or something, you know? So obviously this show is like coasting off of the success of Indian matchmaking. And there are many ways. And in fact, Aparna is sort of exploring some of this stuff in her reporting where like the two communities are kind of in some analogous positioning, especially in relationship to ethno-nationalism, like within the culture of the community. But it seems like in this case, it exposes just how different it is. Like Jews have already gone through that process. And so the hearkening back to it feels a little bit like trad wife stuff in the way that Aparna, you were talking about. No, I think that's really interesting. And I will say, even though I was starting my comments off with criticism, I do think there is kind of an appealing narrative of Jewishness that's on offer here and that it's actually like quite ecumenical and sort of tolerant and open in a sense. I mean, obviously not about certain things. There's no queer people. We don't see queer couples. And we also obviously do not see any Jewish people who want to be matched with non-Jewish people because uh, that's not the show. And or who aren't Zionists, seemingly. So there's like huge gaps there. But in terms of thinking about the fact that there's a actually very religious matchmaker, Eliza, who ends up being a very kind of appealing, warm character who's giving this kind of general dating advice. And she's talking to these people who have all different levels of Jewish observance. And she's not chiding anybody that they shouldn't be eating bacon. Instead, she's saying, okay, great, we'll find someone who matches your level. She's basically saying it's okay, no matter which kind of level of Jewishness you're at, we can find someone, it's all good. And so it's in some ways, it's kind of appealing. But I think if you dig into it a little bit, it doesn't totally make sense because for Eliza, like what's driving some of this is the sense of like religious observance and the fact that these, you know, matches need to be made among people who are both like observing halakha, Jewish law, and that making a Jewish marriage is part of that. But for the people that she's matching who do not really subscribe to that same notion, there's not as much of a clear sense of why they need to be doing that. And so what is on the surface, this really kind of nice sort of openness, which obviously is pleasant to watch, when you dig a little bit deeper, it's just like not totally clear. I would be willing to bet that Eliza is Chabad. It's like Eliza feels a little bit like she's doing like outreach or like Kiruv or something. Why does she want to match secular Jewish couples. I mean, did she do that before? Like probably most of her business is not secular couples. And this might be an innovation of the show or might be just like a function of how open she is or... Right, that is a good point. And I think for people who aren't familiar, like the Chabad theology has to do with this idea that for anyone of Jewish heritage to, you know, follow the commandments in certain ways brings the world closer to 
bringing the Messiah. So that even if someone's a reformed Jew, if you can get them to like do one prayer, that like brings us a step closer. And so that's why like they often are very into outreach. Oh my God, I'm right. She's Chabad. I just found her davening at the Rebbe's grave in Queens. That makes total sense. It was interesting to me. She has these little like principles or like catchphrases, most of which I think are kind of secularizations of more religious principles. I mean, the one that's really like stuck in my mind because it's in some ways the most extreme for a more secular context is the one about touching. Yeah. Basically turning the principle that traditionally Orthodox Jews would not touch until they get married at all into, I think she says like, wait, five dates or something. I found myself both like really interested in what she was doing with that. And also it feels so strange to take something like that principle and remove it from its context or like water it down in this way, it seems, it it feels like it becomes like totally incoherent. Right. It's like, it's pretty arbitrary on a certain level. It's like five dates. What happens then? I mean, it only makes sense again, if there's a matchmaker, it only makes sense in the context where like your experience is being orchestrated by another person. Otherwise it's totally unnatural. But I mean, that one actually makes more sense to me, like the five dates or whatever, like don't touch, like, okay, it's a little bit like assuming everybody's in Sex Addicts Anonymous or whatever, like that they can't handle the hug or whatever. But the one that feels more weird to me is the date them till you hate them. Yeah. But that's just like the advice that my mom would give me. Like, <laughs> if you want to find someone, you got to try a little harder and you even, you know, spark could develop after 10 million years. Sorry, mom. That's not really what she says. But, you know. <laughs> also, was that rooted in any like Jewish precepts? No, 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 no. That's good for her business. <laughs> well, it, it's not actually because in an orthodox context, like you really would make that decision pretty fast. You know, like you're not trying to waste a lot of time going on dates with people. And I feel like what makes it extra weird is that I feel like she made a lot of really bad matches. She kept bringing Harmony, like these guys who were clearly square. And she brought Stuart at first, like a very square woman. And it's like... There was no recognition of the aesthetics of what people might be interested in. And those things do matter. I felt like it seemed like sometimes she was sort of fulfilling people's preferences and sometimes not. And I don't know that I totally (laughs) tracked the logic of it. Like there are some times when like people's preferences clearly seemed to me as a viewer just like really ridiculous. And I wanted to see them get pushed on them. But I, in a general way, I was trying to parse like what she sees her role as. Because in some ways, it seems like it's listening to what people want and giving them exactly what they want. And in some ways, it's trying to like educate them like aesthetically or something out of what they think they want, which has led them to misery or whatever. And I don't quite know how she conceptualizes her role, but it seemed like it was sort of both at once. Right. I felt like the time when that happened most intensely was with Ori, the pretty obvious villain of the season, who's the Israeli-American Mizrahi guy who will only date a woman who has blue eyes. He really wants that blonde hair, and he's always talking about, you know, he won't compromise on looks. And And he lives with his parents, and he's obsessed with his mother in, like, a really weird way. He's got a lot going for him, obviously. And goes on a date with, like, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen, but because she's not blonde and blue-eyed, it doesn't work for him. And then he's, like, really condescending to her. He also demands that they have to speak Hebrew, but then when the woman speaks like better Hebrew than him, I don't think he likes that either. (laughs) (laughs) 
so Lisa kind of eventually sits down with him and is like, you know, are you really sure? Like, you don't want to focus so much on looks in this way. And she sort of tries to guide him a little bit away from the blue eyes thing, but he won't budge on that. It's definitely like a must for him. And then she does eventually say, okay, fine, I've got this match for you. It is an Israeli-American woman who speaks Hebrew and has blonde hair and blue eyes, to which I say, wow, like impressive find. Like she must really have a lot of stables in her match. But it's also very frustrating because then, you know, at the end of the day, he does kind of get what he wants, which is like actually this pretty sexist and racist preference. And so it's interesting because there is this sort of attempt at education, but that isn't really what the project is. Like the project is finding a match for all of these people, even the ones who suck. It is interesting. I mean, obviously that's something that has carried over from Indian matchmaking to Jewish matchmaking. The stated preference for more light-skinned partners I mean, I think it was like impressive at all that Jewish matchmaking had a black Jew on the show. That's like something that I feel like even a couple years ago just wouldn't have happened. And yet there's still just a lot of men being like, oh, I don't like brown hair. I don't like curly hair. Like definitely expressing preferences for more white appearance, European. They keep saying the words European appearance, which is interesting. I do think it's interesting that both of the men who express that preference do come from this Israeli context, which again is like not to say that American Jews aren't also racist in all sorts of ways. But the two men who really express those strong preferences are Ori, this Israeli American guy, and then Noah, I think. There's two Noahs. This is the second Noah. The second Noah. Yeah, he's Italian. He's living in Israel and he's also like, oh, I don't really like curly hair. I like the European look. And I found that kind of interesting. And I was also wondering if it has something to do with like some of like the racialization of Jewishness in Israel and the ways in which there are these like, like this sense of like, you know, Ashkenazi versus like Mizrahi divisions in society are very much more visible. Whereas I think like American Jews like don't necessarily think as much about like these like sort of racial differences within Jewishness in the same way, perhaps. I mean, I think it was also interesting that there was some people on the show who didn't specifically say the like exact look they want, but it was there in the back of their mind. And we could tell like, when Harmony is like rejecting the first whatever number of people that are brought to her, like, she's like, where's my six pack or whatever, like, she's like looking for features or characteristics that like might be equally shallow and like normative, but hasn't spoken them. And I wonder if that's like better or worse. Because like, when she's first introduced and like is talking about what her preferences are and the list is kind of made for her, it's like stable, down-to-earth person, like loving to my children, like listens to a story about my grandmother, like all of these kinds of things. It's like her self-narrative doesn't match what happens. I think we should talk about the Orthodox couple because I do feel like they sort of exist in a different show on some level. No, totally, because they're the only ones for whom... uh, the whole matchmaking thing doesn't feel like kind of a narrative conceit. They are from like traditional Orthodox households who would, it seems, use a a matchmaker to try to make a match. It's interesting. They seem like the best dates in a lot of ways to me. I mean, they do really seem to have chemistry and they do seem like good prospects for each other. It's not even like they have chemistry. It's like they have a shared context which nobody else who she set up had a shared context at all. And she didn't even try. Like, she could have found a match for the first Noah who was outdoorsy. Then they would have had a shared context. And then the, like, conflict they come to, they basically end up not continuing after a few dates because, like, she wants 
a more observant guy than he is. She wanted someone who prays all the time and he doesn't daven mincha, you know, that's it. I think he sort of astutely perceives like, I don't actually want to be more religious. It's just going to be a sticking point. I have two questions to ask. I have one question for Nathan. Nathan, for those listening at home, is married to a high school sweetheart. So I I want to know from you what you have learned about dating from watching this show, (laughs) if anything. And Aparna, I want to know from you what you have learned about Jews from watching this show. I know you said (laughs) you didn't learn that much about Jews, but I think if you had to say... For both of you, if you landed from another planet and this show was like the only thing you ever saw, what would you think? I mean, I feel like what struck me the most or like frustrated me the most. And so you can tell me people who have dated more than I have if this is just reality or this is the like weird container of this show. But like the degree to which everything was about this superficial like list of preferences and the way in which it was so much about people having to just like enumerate this very reductive list of their own desires. Everything felt like very solipsistic to me. And this felt true about the like Jewish aspect too, in which when she would ask like, well, how observant do you want someone to be? And I totally get on a certain level that like, if people's practices and relationships to that are totally misaligned, it's like a recipe for a disaster. But it seemed like people would just articulate such a specificity of preference that to me just felt weird considering how most of them reported having like fluctuated in their lives. Like Elisa herself was like more secular and became more religious. And it's not true for all of them, but I think many of them were more orthodox and now are like what they have called irritatingly flexodox um, or have Uh their own conglomeration of things. And so maybe now I'm just talking about the Jewish part and not the dating part. There's just this like collision of wanting flexibility for themselves, but not for their partners. Yeah, I know this isn't how most people date or even these people would be dating in other contexts, but I was like, how do people meet people? This doesn't seem like it would work at all. I mean, Nathan, I think you're right. Like, I think it is actually really hard. And I do think that part of growing up on some level is recognizing that the thing that you want is not going to come in the package that you want it in, or you can be totally surprised by people. I mean, I think the question is more like, are the people on this show just particularly immature? Or is this also a reason why people remain single? I mean, I do think it's kind of true that it is an outgrowth of these processes that might be considered more inorganic in terms of like dating app and also, you know, this type of matchmaker process in which the logic is kind of reversed because it's not about meeting someone and then figuring out if you like them and then growing a connection from there. It's like this opposite thing where you figure out what you like and then you try to meet the person who fits that. You're shopping. You're shopping. And on the apps, I mean, it's like it really does become the thing that's in your brain because if you're looking at the Hinge app and there's like all sorts of matches there, you can't talk to all of them. You can't go on dates with all of them. You know, if you're just swiping through, you have to start to develop some sort of metric for who you're going to swipe on and who you're not or you'll go totally crazy. And so it becomes very easy to be like, okay, yeah, I see someone, they say they're poly politics are this. So like that's out, which, you know, I think is reasonable. And also very few people on this show had political considerations, which is also interesting. Then you see someone, you're like, oh yeah, they look kind of corporate. That's out. It's like, you have to kind of find a way to filter it and it totally screws with your brain. And I really do think it creates this marketplace logic. I had a very strict rule when I was using the apps, which was basically like, you can only look at the profile once. 
like if I like matched with the person, I would just decide I would go out with them. Because there's so much room for projection even within what you think you want. And just for what it's worth, like I think a lot of the older people on the show were less prone to this kind of behavior than the younger people. I mean, Stuart, for example, who's the best, by the way, his criteria didn't strike me as crazy. He had political stuff, like he was like, I don't want anyone who's conservative. Really the fact that he's the only one who had any kind of real political requirements for their partners, you know. In general, like the values did not seem very important for a lot of these people. A lot of it were like these other types of markers, interests maybe, or like vibes or looks, but yeah, not a lot of values talk. And I think sometimes they would talk about Jewishness in that terms, or like in different ways, people would say they like Jewish values made me want like her to ask, like, what do you value about Jewishness? Because I felt like for most of them, it was not clear. Wait, Aparna, I'm sorry, you have not been released from this task. (laughs) What Jews are like from this show? I'm trying to figure out a way to say this that like doesn't alienate the people in this room. (laughs) As with like most of my Jewish current engagement, I like came to the show in a very comparative frame. Like I literally watched like one episode of Jewish matchmaking. And then I went to one episode of Indian matchmaking and I did like that for the whole season. And I feel like one of my philosemitic insights or whatever is like... Is that what you thought was going to offend us? The philosemitism? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I really appreciated that like this matchmaker is orthodox. And like, of course, you know, her interpretations of Jewish tradition are like weird and arbitrary. And yet that it lends itself to being interpreted in these ways is amazing. You know, like if it can be interpreted by her in this way, like somebody else could take it and like do something else with it and actually come up with like a theory of love and finding your person or whatever that's applicable broadly. And like that has insights into it that kind of borrow from, but like transcend Judaism in like a beautiful way, I guess. And so I'm not saying Aliza did that, but that it showed that there was some space for that. And then one thing that I was definitely impressed by watching the two shows side by side was that the process of assimilation is much further along for like all the Jewish matchmaking characters. And that was clear in like the incessant use of the like discourse of love and romance. And is it really true that there's like a concept of like the soulmate in the religion itself? Because that's nuts. As far as I know, maybe I'm maybe I don't know enough, but there's no equivalent concept of an internal relationship to like your loved ones or whatever, like a like a destined soulmate in Hinduism or like in affiliated other Eastern religions that I'm familiar with. And so it's not a projection back into the past. Like they're not projecting like American discourse back into the past, is it? So if it's truly in the text. Well, but it's different because, well, first of all, obviously this is all hetero patriarchal. So like Lisa actually says exactly this. There's like a, a kind of origin story where like man and women the soul splits and then they they have half a soul until they find one another. I don't know if this is like Midrash, which is like not strictly Torah or Bible, you know, or what, but there is this idea, but I don't think the idea is that there's only one person or something. Like everything in Judaism is like, there's free will and there's destiny at the same time, basically, or God knows everything and there's free will. And so like, therefore it's not like you can't like choose your partner. There's only one person out there or something like that. I don't think that's really the idea, but there is like an idea of Basharit, like a a meant to be. And there certainly is an idea of like half a soul. And like, there's like a way in which the other person like completes that. But I mean, certainly Indian matchmaking is way less universalizing. 
I mean, first of all, there's just like a lot more spiritual accoutrement that doesn't appear in Jewish matchmaking at all. There's like the face reader and like the astrology and there's like specific kind of unspoken, but like very much spoken cast stuff happening, you know, and it's like in Jewish matchmaking, there's none of that. I mean, one way I was thinking about this earlier today is in both shows, like what is a model of a successful marriage that is kind of shown to us? And I feel like in both cases, it's like the matchmakers marriages because nobody else has succeeded in a way that's like a model. And so we see Aliza's home life briefly. And what it seems to be impressing upon us is like, her home life is traditional. She's religious. She has a family. She has like done her job and reproduced and kind of all that stuff. But it also shows like kind of like tenderness with her partner in, in something that, I don't know, balances out some of the more endogamous stuff, I guess. And in Indian matchmaking, in contrast, what we see is like Seema's like husband bringing her a cup of chai and they like get together and they look at these bio datas together because they're running a business, because they like had a merger a few decades ago, and now they're running their business. And there's no discourse of love or affection, but there also isn't any aspiration towards love or affection in that relationship. And that isn't like shown as a sign of success in any way. So I just feel like in Jewish matchmaking, there is still like some space for the person to exist outside of the endogamy and the like business arrangement and the like imperative to like procreate and all these other kind of things that are like shoved upon you. But there's like some space for you in there. I don't know. The more orthodox you get, the more it's like the business merger. Hmm. All right. We have to talk about the Israel stuff on this show because this is Jewish currents. I mean, I guess I'll just get really serious for a second and say that I felt deeply, deeply, deeply sad after watching this show. It was actually a weird sensation because on the one hand, I was sort of like, this is fun. This is a fun show. It's really enjoyable. I like Eliza despite myself, you know. But I also felt like, obviously, if you're making a show called Jewish Matchmaking, you want to deal with the Jewish world as a whole. I mean, it's sort of interesting, actually. It's not like they were looking at Europe or looking at Latin America, other places in the diaspora. It really was like, this bipolar U.S.-Israel show, which makes sense. I mean, that's where most Jews in the world are. But it just made me feel, I, I remember as my mom was like in the process of becoming more radical or liberal on Israel-Palestine, whatever you want to call it, we had this conversation where she was like, look, I get it. It's bad. It's apartheid. Everything is terrible. But I just want to go to Israel and feel good. And for a while I thought about this and I was like, God, what a fucked up thing to say, you know? And it, and it is a fucked up thing to say, you know? She just wants to feel okay there. But I actually had almost that exact same feeling like as I was watching the show, like I just want to watch the show about Jews and feel okay. And it felt really sad to me that like I can't just watch a show about Jewish people and feel normal about it because it is so suffused with Jewish nationalism and particularly a certain brand of state nationalism. <laughs> and that was really painful, actually. I mean, and also just like so weird. I mean, there was one woman, Cindy, who's an American in Israel who like kind of upended her whole life to go there, as many people in the show that we meet have done, in fact. And we even have someone who like left and tried to join the IDF. And she's just like, you know, the most important thing to me is tikkun olam, <laughs> meaning repairing the world, like making the world a better place. And she says that like 
five to 10 times. Meanwhile, at the same time, gets like really kind of like teary-eyed talking about her grandmother and all the hardship that she'd gone through. I think it's like some kind of Holocaust story, some kind of story of expulsion, you know, really interested in tikkun olam, moved to Israel to make Aliyah, no awareness of what the political implications of any of that is. You have this other couple who's on a date talking about how they were brainwashed to love Israel and being like, and I love it. I love that I was brainwashed. Obviously, this is the best place ever, you know? I mean, that's painful. Like, I really felt a yearning for like a post-Zionist world where like there are Jews in Israel and I can watch a TV show about them and not feel fucking miserable. I felt the same way. It did make me feel a little bit like, I don't know how the Jewish diaspora is going to get out of this hole, how Jewishness in the contemporary world is going to get out of this hole. It did just feel like it's so intertwined. It's so deep. You know, this like this normalization of Israel as like a center of Jewish life in this particular state configuration that it just made me feel quite pessimistic about what the future holds there. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we're saying, you know, Eliza has been willing to see people from like a lot of different backgrounds and has seemed pretty open. Would she consult with an anti-Zionist client? I kind of doubt it. If you saw the size of the Israeli flag on her house in this show, you know, like obviously there's some filtering that was done in terms of like the people who are even chosen to appear in a show like this. But still, I mean, it's like we learn about, you know, young people, moving in different directions, politics changing, the U.S. Jewish community in disarray over the new Israeli government and all these things. And then it just kind of reminds you that there's a lot of people that this really hasn't touched yet, or there's like a lot of communities where there really haven't been any inroads in that way. And, you know, I think that's that's pretty disappointing. And it's also just interesting to see how like different, I think, pockets and bubbles just like experience these things in different ways. I was reading an article in the foreword the other day that was about the Leon Oris book Exodus, which is kind of like this huge, really popular novel about Israel around the time of its founding that probably like successfully brainwashed and propagandized an entire generation of American Jews. And this article was kind of talking about like what this novel means to different people. And she was mostly like interviewing people that she knew, but it was like this older generation of Jews were talking about how this novel had meant so much to them. But then now all they do is just like fight with their children and grandchildren about Israel who don't see any of the same like promise that they saw and instead just feel opposed to it. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. And it's like, okay, there it's clear that there are some social sets and social segments where there is this kind of major generational conflict or there is like a young generation that's really moving away from this relationship to Israel. And then also there's clearly many social sets and bubbles where that's not the case at all. Yeah, totally. It feels hard to me to assess what impact a show like this has as in terms of like presenting a certain representation, but it does seem notable and like bad (laughs) the way in which it does show this whitewashed view of Israel and like this total unquestioned intertwinement of Zionism with Jewish identity and an idea of like Jewish peoplehood. And I was thinking about when we were looking at some of the coverage, I was actually struck by the degree to which a narrative of like rising anti-Semitism did not play a role in the show. Like, I don't actually remember it coming up at all. No, it didn't really. But it has in at least the coverage, like in various articles where it'll be sort of speculating on like why people who would be seeking out a Jewish matchmaker or necessarily care about having Jewish partners, like why they care about certain kind of Jewish identification and and various articles will like cite the like 
particular ADL statistics about rising anti-Semitism. And I don't know, another feel like depressing thing is the way in which just as a cultural object, it ends up playing into and reinforcing this whole web of oversimplified and like damaging narratives about what it is to be Jewish. And I feel like it goes hand in hand with the kind of empty or attenuated Jewishness that it presents, even in its like attempt to be like, as we've talked about, like diverse in certain ways and capacious in certain ways, especially around lines of like observance, it does end up presenting a like very flat Jewish peoplehood narrative and one that like just flows directly into the idea of Israel. You know, something I think is kind of interesting that I didn't mention earlier, all of the B-roll, like when they're in American cities, leans heavily on images of people of color. Whenever there's B-roll, it's like Black people or Latino people. Like when it was in the U.S., there was kind of like a distinction that was being drawn between the Jews that were dating each other who for the most part, with one exception, were white. And then the background, whereas in Israel, Israel is also a very diverse place, but the B-roll in Israel is actually more white on some level than the general population. And the B-roll is very much like the beach with like a giant Israeli flag and everyone's frolicking. I mean, there's other parts of maybe Jerusalem. Yeah, there's like the shuk. The like old city sort of vibe. I mean, it's definitely like kind of like the birthright advertisement, you know, they make it look very appealing. I don't know. Maybe there's not much else to say about that. It just was really sad. Yeah. I mean, I share your hope that like one day there'll be a way to watch representation that isn't tied up in all sorts of garbage. And it's like hard to imagine actually, because like this whole enterprise, at least like in the Indian matchmaking context, like I can't actually imagine there being matches made or like marriages made that don't have to do with preserving the bloodline. That's like my background in it, I guess, like coming from a like 90% arranged marriage type of situation back in India, like that's what's happening. And so can this enterprise be saved from some degree of eugenics, really? Like, and I don't know, maybe not. I think that's a really hard question and something that we have tried to explore in some of our coverage around, you know, Jewish dating and continuity. And it's a question that constantly comes up, which is, is there a version of this Jews dating Jews that doesn't rely on that sort of exclusionary or racialized logic? And I do think I'd like to believe that there is a way in which there maybe are two people who have a real particular interest in joining a certain community or doing a certain type of ritual or doing a certain type of tech study often and really making that a central part of their lives and feeling like they want to find someone else who also does that. And I, I think that there is a version of that that doesn't have to be corrupted by some of the nastier parts of it. But I do think in the current world, it is quite hard because they're all so wrapped up together. I mean, I, I just want to point out actually that like very few people on the actual show seem to express the most base nefarious version of that. You know, like I think actually like the things that felt like really scary and what all of them were expressing was more in the realm of like, I want somebody European, sexism, misogyny, colorism, racism, that stuff felt more up than like a kind of like blanket ethno-nationalism. And like, it did feel to me like a number of those people would be totally fine dating non-Jews and are on the show for different reasons. So I, I don't know. I mean, I just mean to say that like, 
it's interesting that actually the evils of what is expressed through the show are kind of like baseline, almost like universalized shittiness. It's true. We, we did not get a lot of sound bites saying, you know, we have to replace the babies that Hitler killed. There wasn't a lot of like checking to make sure like what kind of Jew they were, if they're like halachically Jewish or she didn't set up anyone patrilineally Jewish either. That's kind of interesting. I mean, I definitely agree that the like most outwardly spoken violences were like elsewhere, but I do wonder if there's ways in which, I don't know, a lot of that continuity between the desire to have a Jewish partner, at least in the context of this show and ethno-nationalism, like are there and latent or more suppressed. You know, often they would say things about like, oh, I just want someone who really understands me. And I can understand why people say that kind of thing. And I also think there's buried within that this kind of just like rejection of difference as the model of relation <laughs> and prizing sameness as the model of relation that does have this continuity with a form of ethno-nationalism. I mean, obviously, it also this like gets down to some like very basic and difficult questions about how to conceptualize Jewishness as like a community, even if we, we set aside a nation state, what the nature of that community is and what the ethics of its parameters and togethernesses are or whatever. But at least for me, I feel very put off by and allergic to and like suspicious of even the very kind of like watered down and banal or sort of familiar versions and articulations of that. I, I do want to defend that a little bit. I mean, we're always talking on this show about like how basically expressions of Jewishness on TV or like in fiction or whatever, at this stage of assimilation feel watered down or like nothing or whatever. And I think implicitly in what we're saying is also that like we want it to mean something. Like we believe that it does mean something. And if it does mean something, then like wouldn't it also mean that that it's like something that we might want to express with another person or like get deeper in with another person and not like through having to educate that other person, you know, but like something where like the other person is bringing that dimension to the relationship. I think that that's fair. I mean, like, I think it's hard to both complain about their Jewishness not having any content and complain about it being only like eugenicist or something. I mean, I think like the combination of those two is particularly upsetting, where the only thing that's left is the desire for the like lineage without the content or something. But at the same time, I don't know, like for someone like Noah, who like lived in Israel for many years and came back and wraps to fill in every morning or whatever, what are the odds that a non-Jewish person is the right person for him, even as he's not so religious? Like probably not high, like he needs someone who's going to share that with him. I definitely find it much more compelling the, and like less suspicious the more that there is a, a like a ritual or content to the person's Jewishness. And I agree that it feels like most <laughs> shitty, the like when it's sort of in the absence of anything where it really does end up just becoming, like, I want someone from a similar background, it often ends up having like particular racial implications and things like that. I do think, and and maybe this is like idiosyncratic, but I totally see what you're saying, Ariel, but also have a kind of suspicion of like what it means to prioritize that sharing within rather than sharing across or, or something. And I come to these conversations from like a particular place because like I have a partner who does share 
my Jewish life with me and is converting. And that obviously is like a very particular thing. Yeah. And I come to it as someone who's married to someone who is technically Jewish and actually is very resistant to sharing my Jewish life with me. And it sucks. And actually has like changed a lot over time. Totally. We've talked about this before and you could go back to our intermarriage episode if you would like to listen to that, listeners. Yeah. And I think as someone who's been kind of, you know, dating for a while, I, I've started to find myself against some of my impulses, feeling more of that sense of thinking that there is something really nice in being able to share this sense of like attachment or even even the sense of like wounded attachment or you know struggle over Jewishness and I don't know I I can't always necessarily defend it like yes I do think there is a problem of wanting to share within sameness as opposed to across difference and obviously there are racial implications but I'm not sure it's so different than saying oh yeah well I also probably want to date someone who is a Democrat or whatever, is a leftist or really attached to literature or, you know, likes living in a big city. Like it just, it doesn't feel to me always necessarily more nefarious than those other attachments. I think the difference is that being a Democrat doesn't flow in the blood or whatever. So I just keep going back to like the feudal context in which these things are coming up and where it becomes really important to like make sure that like you're not losing your religion and culture in a biological like sense and also like some of the people in the show are more reasonable in wanting to be with a Jewish person than others like why does Ori need to be with a Jewish person like I don't understand oh, Ori definitely needs to be with a Jewish person <laughs> why because we don't want to inflict him on anybody else no because he no because Ori has a Sephardic observance pattern he's traditional his family has Shabbat dinner every Friday night together. Like they're like religious the way that like a lot of Sephardic people are religious. They're not actually religious at all, but like they are traditional. I think probably for these Americans, the model that makes the most sense is that they'll just like meet someone, whether they're Jewish or not. And then like that other person might just decide whether they want to convert or not. That's more the American model. And we're not going to get that on the show or whatever. But like for Ori, I think it's very unlikely that Ori would ever date somebody who wasn't Jewish. All I'm going to say about Ori is I feel like it's interesting because again, there was like no problematizing of Zionism or Israel at all in the show. And obviously that made us very upset. And somehow it still came away with this sort of like problematic notion of the way that Israelis approach race and it made all the Israeli men look like assholes. So in a way, I kind of thought that was maybe one upside. Yeah. Well, in summation, watch Jewish matchmaking <laughs> if you're folding your laundry. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of On the Nose. Thank you to my colleagues Nathan, Mari, and Aparna for joining me. We are actually in the middle of a subscription drive here at Jewish Currents. If you subscribe now, you'll get our spring issue. Yes, we are late. But you can plug in the subscription code SPRING23, all caps, and you'll get 50% off of the cover price. So please do that because you'll get a very beautiful magazine that has a lot of great stuff in it this time around, including Aparna's piece on how American Hindu groups are learning from Jewish American groups on how to codify definitions of, in this case, Hindu phobia to quash criticism of Modi's India. You're not going to want to miss that piece. Thank you so much for joining us. See you soon.